Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello everyone, welcome back to The Grid. Today I have a guest from my neck of the woods, Philadelphia's own Joe McKeon. He's the 2015 main event champion, a two-time WSOP bracelet winner. He actually has over $16 million in live tournament earnings and he's not even 30 years old. Joe is also a coach at Chip Leader Coaching and I'm really excited today to get his perspective on poker in general and improvement and a very interesting hand, a very memorable one. It's from the final table of the World Poker Tour in Rolling Thunder, and Joe had Queen 10 offsuit. Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get you on the pod. So you took this hand, pretty famous hand, with a Queen 10 offsuit. Tell us a little bit about when this took place, where in the tournament, and what was going on leading up to the hand. We're down to like five people in a World Poker Tour event out in California. Um, I think this was in 2018. Basically, me and this other kid, Ian Steinman, one and two in chips. We have we have virtually the same stack. I know in the actual hand, uh, they made an error and they have him having way too many chips in the hand. We actually had about the same stack. We were one and two by a lot. Um, he raises blind on blind. I, I call with Queen 10. He makes kind of a small raise preflop and the... Uh, We've been playing a little bit before this, and like my, my general read on him was he he was a little passive, and he was I don't want to say scared, but he kind of gave off a scared vibe from final two tables in this. Like he he was playing kind of passive and very cautiously, so I, I thought I would have a good chance of running him over in some spots. And a spot like this, where he's raising blind on blind, kind of small, and I have queen ten. It's it's pretty easy call. I have flop comes ace seven five with a flush draw, and I have queen ten with no backdoor. He like down bets the flop and I call because I'm pretty sure if he doesn't have an ace, he's just going to check the turn a lot. And I'm going to bet now I'm going to win. The turn to Jack, he he did check. I, I bet now that I have a gutter and I still have queen high, I can get him to fold a lot of stuff. Uh, and when I bet, I just have like draws and like an ace a lot of the time. I, I have some bluffs, but like he has like a lot of hands that'll like call one and then fold the river unimproved or he'll just fold the turn with hands like king queen, king 10, other random stuff he might be raising blind on blind with. He ended up calling. Which is fine because I, I have a plan to bet a lot of rivers and I'm going to bet a lot of rivers for a lot of chips to make him fold a lot of his like one pair hands. Uh, but the river is an offsuit king, so I end up having the stone nuts. And he leads a pretty big size. And at this point, like the way he's playing, I almost put him like exclusively on exactly ace king. And I could just shove in all my chips pretty casually, not expecting him to fold a hand like ace king. I would basically just shove every single hand that could beat ace-king. I have probably no bluffs because we're like five-handed or something on a final table with huge implications and we're one and two in chips. 
And uh, when he takes this line, he just never is bluffing. And he always has a very strong hand. There's there's no purpose for him betting like a decent sized amount on the river as like no one ever goes bet flop, check call, turn, and then bet big on river without having like a huge hand because especially as a pre-flop raiser, because like any of their bluffs would just never do that. It'd always be just like betting somewhere else in the hand. When he bets the river, he almost always improves to like a two pair hand that's really strong. And like he has either King Jack or Ace King. And he's much more likely, I think, to just lead big with Ace King than he is King Jack. Because with King Jack, I could still have some aces up and stuff that could beat him. And he might like try to catch bluffs more often instead of going for value. So he, he makes some huge bet and I shove and he takes like four or five minutes to tank and fold. Ends up folding three kings, which is probably not a good fold. I would shove five sevens. I shouldn't really ever have queen ten. So if you look at it like combinatorically, I have three sets of fives. I have three sets of sevens. And I have one combo of queen ten of hearts. He's getting way too good of a price. He, he probably shouldn't be folding three kings. He can definitely fold ace king though. Like folding ace king would be a pretty darn good fold. Since I like just the way the hand plays, I think he has ace king a lot. If I had a hand like ace jack, I would just call. If I had a hand like ace five, I would just call. Because he has like king jack or ace king a lot. And I beat one of those hands. The other one I don't expect to fold. Whereas like if I raise with ace five and he has king jack, I think he's going to probably find a fold. Because again, there's it's like incredible for me to have any bluffs there. So he makes this huge hero fold, folding kings, um, and you don't find out about it right away because it's it's televised poker. At what point did you realize that he made this insane fold? Well, like immediately after this tortured fold, I was just like, oh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, man. I had ace jack. Like, I, I thought it was good. You must have aces up, right? And you're going to fold or something. Like, I, I was just messing with him verbally because um, I was pretty sure he folded ace king after all that time. I do want to reiterate, too, that the stream had the stacks wrong. So, like, when I went all in, like, he's calling off pretty much for his tournament life, too. Or if, I think he had me covered by, like, two or three big blinds. So he, he would be crippled as hell if he called and lost in this spot but like 30 minutes later I, I don't know what's happened i think we're in the middle of a hand and like he has cards in front of him and i don't and he's like on a flop against someone else in the hand and he just goes like so, someone in the audience yelled something like he had queen 10 and he, he just like verbally like gets all excited and blah 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 and like he's still in the middle of a hand with someone so it, it's it's like a weird spot like if you watched the hand i guess 30 minutes later where he does this it's it's really bizarre like you're on a final table and like people are breaking character because of this but like if you're gonna make a fold like that and you're wrong you're gonna feel really bad about it if you make a fold like that and you're right you're gonna like something like that is, is like um what what a lot of poker players are trying to do they're they're trying to perform on a big stage because i think that's kind of the poker player dream with like tv and stuff and um just something like that when, when you do that and you're right and it looks really good it's going to make you feel really good and something like that might be even more like exciting to you in the moment than like winning a flip on a final table i would see it that way too like i made this amazing play that like a lot of people wouldn't make and i was right and it's shown on tv and like people are back home are going to see this and be like holy crap he's so good and then like three hands later, like you three bet jacks and ace king shoves and you call and win. It's like, cool. There's not a lot of skill in that. It's just how, kind of how tournaments are. You guys get really good hands and you go flipping for hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity on a final table. But like something like that, like digging deep and making a fold like that, even though I personally think the fold is probably not the correct fold. It's still a good fold. He just makes a lot of money because he makes this fold. Because if he calls, loses, is like two big blinds, likely goes out, you know, in the next two or three hands gets fifth no one no one says anything i get called a luck box i mean I, I get called a luck box anyway but i actually saw um an interview with the villain in the hand or the hero if you will ian steinman and 
he says that he was really beating himself up about the fold. So he made the fold, but then he instantly regretted it. I mean, that's not that shocking. Is that you are a very aggressive player, and the flop was ace five seven with two hearts. The turn was a jack. He rivered a set of kings. He doesn't even have the king of hearts. So he makes this huge fold and then instantly feels terrible about it. Apparently, he'd been, one of his friends on the rail said, he'd been beating himself up for a half hour about it. And we were upset about it as well. He was beside himself thinking he had just blown the tournament because Joe McKean had told him, you're going to regret that fold for the rest of your life. Yeah, I told you, I verbally was like messing with him. I mean, we're on a final table for lots of money. If I can get him to play a little worse for 30 minutes, it's probably worth my while. Like he's on my right. He's still, he's probably still in second place in the hand. So like letting him chill out or make mistakes against me specifically could benefit me. Or just to increase like the emotional volatility. Was that something, because he's obviously very emotional about this fall. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how many time banks he used. He used some like huge amount. He used almost all of what he had since this is a shot clock tournament. I mean, the whole time, like toward the end before he's like coming to grips with the fact that he's about to fold this huge hand, he's like already like, I don't want to say tilting is not the right word, but he's already like mentally like ready to like go down a little bit. So I figured like when someone's going to do that, like even if they make this amazing fold against me and they're right, I need to mess with them a little bit, maybe get them to go away a little bit for e- even a while because when they do find out later on, he, he's going to have that emotional high. Like I want him to be like as low as possible to get that emotional high, because if he's lower than like, he might make more mistakes and not have a lot of chips. Whereas like when he comes back on that high, he might like start playing great again. Wow. That's such a hyper rational way to think about it. Now, what about you? Because you're talking about your opponent in the hand who obviously had a roller coaster of emotions, making this crazy fold, turning out to be right, then feeling that rush of positivity. What about you when you found out that he folded kings in that spot? Did you feel bad at all? Like he picked up a read on you? Nah, I didn't really even think about it or process it until after the tournament because you're in the moment. I was also like pretty sick that final table, that whole tournament for like three days for some reason. I just, I caught something and I was, I was miserable. That final table, especially, I, I probably was not at my peak. So I had to like dig in and do what I could to kind of keep my edge and try to win the tournament. A lot of people... If somebody folds a huge hand like that against them, they feel bad, like they got owned. Is it because you're such a successful tournament poker player that your confidence is kind of immovable? Like what makes it not really phase you? I don't know. I've just been there a lot. And I I, I would rather go back after the tournament and kind of figure out what I did wrong or right or what like other people did wrong or right and see if like what what they did lined up with what I thought they would do, something like that. So I can kind of have an idea of like, well, are my reads good? Are they bad? Maybe I pick up something on someone like after the fact that's like kind of a population tell that I can use in the future. But in the moment, we just got to keep playing. Like I won this huge pot. Now, now I'm the chip leader and I have to move forward and think how I'm going to use this chip lead to win the tournament or increase my odds the best I can. Did you feel like there was a possibility that you gave something away with your body language or you didn't really have any concern about that? He like didn't look at me at all on the river. So if, if he picked something up, he did it like through peripheral vision or something. So I, I, I didn't think anything really at all. He, he was doing a lot of staring at everything but me. And, and I don't think he was he was too much of a huge live tell guy in general. So in your description of the hand that you gave at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned that you wouldn't have too much queen 10, that you might have like the queen 10 of hearts or the queen 10 of spades, as that was the other card on the flop. So why did you end up 
calling that flat bet with the queen 10 offsuit. Is that totally standard for you or is that an exploit against a specific opponent? No, that was an exploit because I thought he was playing cautiously and a little bit of scared. Like I thought I'd be able to run him over a lot on flops and turn on flops and turns. I thought like he was just going to do a lot of check folding on the turn when he didn't have anything. And then like when he didn't have an ace, even I thought he would do some check folding, but like obviously he called with Kings, so, like he's probably gone with the Jack and stuff too. Just I, I floated because I thought he was not going to be the type to put a lot of pressure on me. Like if you bet the turn, I just have a very easy fold pretty much no matter what the turn card was. But in this spot, I thought he just, he, he wasn't really playing barely. He was playing more like check, maybe call, maybe fold. And I just thought I'd be able to run him over. And like, we're one and two in chips. So if I take chips off him, I get like this bigger lead on him, which is like great for a final table. It, it, it's just kind of the feeling I had. I, I mean, he ended up folding like an incredible hand. So like, I think that kind of tells you like maybe he was playing well, but I also thought he would trend more towards folding in a lot of his tougher decisions which is why I kind of thought like I, that that's something I thought I picked up. So if that was going to be the case, I was going to put him to a lot of tough decisions and make him fold. There was just a lot of stuff going in my head. I thought I had the edge that I had on him was that he was going to play more passively and fold hands. Maybe he shouldn't. And therefore I could win more pots. So I, my floating range against him, especially in position on like a blind on blind spot like that was going to be wider. Ace five, seven. I mean, there's just, in fact, there's probably not a whole lot of hands that you're really going to fold there. Probably not against him in that spot. Can you name one? Like, like think of a hand that you would definitely fold. Like, what about like Jack nine? I'd fold like queen two suited, maybe. I don't know, something of that nature. Jack nine, queen 10. I mean, they're all kind of the same. He was back kind of small. I, I don't know. It was it was an in the moment thing. It was over two years ago, so I couldn't tell you exactly what I was thinking. But I do remember thinking like, I'm going to run this kid over more often and I have position on him. So I don't mind being wider in these spots. I should probably fold more often than not. And like today, if we were on that final table, I would fold and not even think about it. Even with like reads that this dude is passive. I I, I tend to make those plays against weaker players more often because they're going to be the ones playing more face up. And Ian's not a weak player by any means. But just in that tournament, the feeling I got was that he was like, he was definitely more cautious. And, And when I see cautiousness, especially deep in a tournament, I think it's cool to pounce on it if I have the opportunity to do so. And that was just the spot. Now, speaking of pouncing, once you bet the turn, so it's ace five with the ace of hearts and the five of hearts, and then seven jack, offsuit jack on the turn. Um, after you bet the turn, suppose the river is a total blank. Um, what was your plan there? Depends what the total blank is. Like if the river was a heart, I was definitely planning on wagering a lot if he checked. If the river was like, if there was a queen or 10, I wouldn't bet. If the river was like a nine, I might bet. If the river paired the board, I would probably never bet. If the river was like an offsuit deuce, I think I might have given up. I'm, I still might have wagered. My bet would be pretty large as well. Like the river definitely depends on whether I'm going to fire or not. Also, like he might just lead the river and then I can easily fold queen high some percentage of the time because like he did lead when he had a set. So like, let's say he has ace eight and the river's an eight, he might just lead the river and I'll just fold. So how about when this hand, you said you weren't phased during the tournament and afterwards you were pretty logical about it as well. Um, when the hand got a lot of attention, did it phase you at all that he folded this against you? No, it's more annoying that people like wanted to talk to me about it. It's like, oh man, that guy made a great fold against you. It's like, cool, thanks. I know I was there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, even if like that wasn't the hand I thought that like if I went back and as far as like televised final tables go, I definitely played that one much more strangely than I have any other tournament. And like, I I probably ended up punting my spot in that tournament. And it wasn't because of that hand, obviously that hand like helped me get to where I was, but I did a lot of stuff afterwards. That was, um, 
that was probably unnecessary. And in retrospect, I wouldn't play that way as much. I definitely did not play that tournament great in general. So when that hand came, that wasn't my focus. It was more like, well, what did I do wrong here, here, and here? And like, these players are playing this way and I should be playing this way as like a result because I I think they should play this way, but they're not playing this way. So I can't assume that they're going to play that way. There's a lot of back and forth to it. It's a weird spot because the tournament ended up getting kind of shallow toward the end. The average chip stack went down a bit because we went three, four levels without busting anybody. And that'll always just kind of consolidate deeper stacks into shorter stacks. And I tried to get a little too aggressive on that final table because there was definitely a cockiness about me on that entire final table. Like, I'm the best player here. I'm going to run everyone over. And I didn't. And I, I cost myself trying. So... The interesting thing for me is just the contrast between both of you in this hand in that it seems like he was, you know, so emotionally invested in the outcome of the hand results, you know, finding out what you had or the, the revelation of your actual hall cards. And you were so cool. And I think it's interesting because obviously you're both strong poker players with you having this huge accomplishment of the WSOP main event win. But I don't know if that's something that can be taught to just be, be super cool, is it? Is it, you know, just not to be super phased by any emotional content? I mean, humans are emotional people. It's really hard to do. And like, I get emotional too, but I try to just put it on the side. I've been there enough where I, I think I'm good enough where like I, I can focus on what's in front of me. I've taken beats. I've played hands poorly. I've done a lot of stuff where it's just like... If I'm going to get emotional, I'll do it in between hands. When the cards get dealt, I'm back to laser focusing on the spot in front of me and doing what I feel like I need to do to make the most money in the hand. Doug Polk made a a video about this hand. And I think he actually corrected the stack sizes from the WPT replay. So that was cool. But anyway, he made a video and he went into a lot of depth. He talked about the strategy a little bit. But for him also, he went into depth about how it epitomized the results-oriented and kind of superficial approach um, when people watch poker as he felt that the reaction that this was like a brilliant fold was very overstated because, of course, you have a range of hands, not just Queen-10, which was the nuts. So it was a very interesting video. Um, Did you watch it? And what did you think of that um, thesis, if you will? Yeah, I kind of remember watching it a while ago. And like, what I remember is Doug was like, Joe should just hold the flop. And he was like, which he's he's kind of right. And then um, he was also like, this is just not a good fold, which is kind of the way I thought of it. Because like I said, I thought he like had just exclusively ace king the way the hand was played out. And I'm just showing every hand better. And if you want to go into combos, like in theory, I should have exactly queen 10 of hearts. And then I should have, if you want to give me queen 10 of spades, sure, you can. But then you have two combos of that. And then you have three combos of sevens, three combos of fives. If you're talking about, two and eight combos that beat you and you're getting you know some great price on the river like there's more combos i have that that he stacks me against than he does like get stacked so folding that hand is probably abysmal and like if he's folding that hand he's never calling this river bet because he never has a better hand than kings in this spot so it, it, it's like i said i don't think the fold was was going to be a good fold in the long run um if he exploited and just found the spot like good for him you'd have to ask him about it um he did say something like I didn't think you'd ever put in anything worse than the stone nuts for all these chips on the river, which is like kind of valid. But I, I, I also don't try to make people fold top two pair. So like when I'm shoving that river, I'm trying to get called if I can beat top two pair. So I'm, I'm going to play all my hands. Like if you folded ace king, I think it's a good fold. If you folded kings, I think it's just not a good fold because of all the hands in the middle I could have that kings beat and ace king doesn't. 
Right, like the fives and the sevens that might play exactly this way, considering the stacks and the ICM implications. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I really did like Doug's video, especially when it came out. But then when I rewatched it, I was thinking about how you know, the grid is really a collision of the math of poker, but also the stories in poker. And, and you can kind of understand why people want to read this hand in a very literal way, because it's a it's a grand stage. It's a WPT. He makes this huge fold, this singularity. And the idea that, you know, poker fans are going to watch that and instead just break down all the percentages it's a lot harder to make a story out of that right so especially to like the average viewer so it's kind of makes sense it's like one of those things like would poker be so popular if people weren't able to like watch a hand like this and just marvel at it well it's really weird because if you like I think a lot of the players that I would consider to be better players were like, kind of like, yeah, this probably wasn't a good fold, blah, blah, blah. And then like all the other, you know, randoms and people who are definitely more results oriented and like the people that would watch a Doug Polk video, especially, they're going to be a lot more like, oh my God, this is great. Like this guy's awesome, you know? And like nothing against Ian because he's a very good poker player for sure. And like, I mean, he made an amazing fold. You can't take that away from him ever, even if like mathematically it, it wasn't like it wasn't the correct play quote unquote against like what I think my range is and like what he thinks my range is blah, blah, blah. I think that's just a standard thing. Like the marketability needs to go to the players that aren't, you know, super established already because the super established players don't need marketability to get in the game of poker. But like you have people who are like casual looking at this hand thinking like, Oh, maybe if he can do it, I can do it too. Stuff like that. That's cool. And like, it gives them something to discuss. It keeps it, keeps the game a little more mainstream like there's all sorts of poker tournaments but when, when you get on a poker tournament everyone's just playing okay and you know you're, you're just watching jacks versus ace king get in for six hours and you know whoever wins the most jacks versus ace kings wins the tournament it's not necessarily the most exciting thing to watch or talk about when you get to go delve deep in hands and you get to see something like a set versus a straight and somehow the set doesn't get stacked th- that's when the poker players can talk and like they'll have something to strive for and they'll want to play more and be like i want to get there and see if i can do that you know all that like the poker dream is kind of what what the game is built on i think especially in tournaments like the dream is that you come you put in one buy-in and you get back you know hundreds of buy-ins there's definitely a gambling element to tournaments and like a lot of people that are interested in poker are going to have somewhat of an interest in gambling to a degree and all that stuff kind of just meshes well. So you need to have stuff that you can talk about on top of which. So people continue to have interest. Like this hand got publicized really hard afterwards. And like, I probably didn't even realize the gravity of it until it started getting publicized myself. Yeah, definitely. When you um, you know mentioned that you would want to do this hand, I was really excited because I'd actually already seen it and thought about it. In that video, Doug goes on to talk about how he feels that the biggest mistake that poker players make is that they're afraid. And he says that argues that both in not bluffing enough and not making big calls and big stages. Now, Doug, obviously, huge online career and, you know, won the uh, won, won a bracelet. But you have a lot of experience in the trenches of, you know, the WSOP circuit, the WPT. So do you agree with his statement there? Well, I mean, kind of, because like I was playing the hand the way I was because I thought he was going to be a little more afraid. So, and I think in general, yeah, people are in that spot. Um, Doug definitely comes from more of a cash game background, so he doesn't understand the nuances of ICM probably as much as 
people who have played tournaments forever and ever, although I don't know if anyone ever really truly understands all the nuances of ICM. We all have a good idea of it. And like the way Doug plays, he's probably more likely to get like sixth or first than he is to like make make more money, if that makes any sense. Right. Understood. It's yeah. Not like that. Like Doug would never fold three kings there, nor should he. And if if Doug Polk was playing that hand against me, I would just fold the flop because I know he's not going to like make mistakes on the Turner River the way I thought a kid on the final table who has already in my mind exuberated a lot of cautiousness and I, I don't want to use the word afraid because I think that's kind of disrespectful but he, he he's definitely a little more cautious and I thought he would trend more towards folding in a lot of his tougher decisions whereas like Doug is going to just kind of make the correct play in the decision whether that be fold or call. That's interesting that you make that distinction um, linguistically. I quoted somebody on the grid some episodes ago about how if you put a gun to someone's head, there are either a spoo monkey or a coward. And I retweeted that quote and I got some criticism because people are apparently very triggered by the word coward. They think it's an extremely negative word, but afraid is also negative. And that's why you're using this word cautious, which is interesting. Uh, because it's kind of means the same thing, but without that same negative connotation, more just like lower variance, maybe winning a little less money, but also busting less often. There's a difference between cautious and afraid. Because afraid is just like I'm, I'm afraid to play pots with you. Like I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to make a big decision, so I'm just always going to do this. Cautious is like I'm fully aware of the situation I might get myself in, and I'm going to proceed with caution and kind of try to trust my skills to make the best decision at the end of the hand if things go awry. And like Ian Steinman is a good poker player he's not he's not sitting there like clueless just you know like being phased by the moment but going back to your quote i think it's like the first time i played on a tv table was that main event and one of the first things i said in like an interview was like the exact thing you said i think everybody either wants to look bright for the cameras and go crazy and show off or they're all going to be a bit scared of the cameras and kind of be afraid of making a mistake. And if you can generalize who's who, then as long as you're not afraid to make a mistake and you're not afraid of the stage, then like you can kind of take advantage of that once you feel out who's who. I remember like thinking this, especially in that uh, WSOP tournament, because as soon as we got moved to a TV table, I noticed a lot of people either playing a lot tighter, afraid to make mistakes, or they were trying to show off a bit and uh, like they were playing slightly different than they were before we were on the TV table. And something like that is like, a real big deal. It, it's completely different playing on stage when like people are watching you than it is playing, you know, in a casino at a cash game or like level three of a tournament. I, I think just the humor, the human emotion of it has people wanting to to perform on the stage, but they they don't know exactly how to go about it, so they go one way or the other. So your your quote about gun to head, everyone's a spew monkey or coward is just right. Whoever is criticizing you just doesn't understand or doesn't know or they're making bad generalizations. I, I'm completely in agreement. That's a good quote. And, and like the best regs try to like not be either. They try to get in there and not let it affect them. And I think the ones that are the most successful do that the best. Yeah. And I think that people generally will have one tendency, but the goal of being a great poker player is to remove your tendency and, you know, approach approach an optimal version of yourself right so if your first tendency is you want to bluff and go bananas and you kind of have to temper that and if your instinct is to be tight then you have to temper that as well I think that that's the the goal really um, to kind of overcome your weaknesses and make poker a positive mirror of yourself rather than like a negative one 
I do want to segue into your work with chip leader coaching because this is all very related. The students that come to you are probably already pretty successful because they have like different tiers of membership. So you're the highest tier. So to get coaching with you, they have to be somewhat successful. That said, what is the most typical leak that you feel you have to fill when um, that you have to address in your coaching work? So chip leader coaching is generally mainly for live poker and you can't just memorize Pio and go into live poker and play optimally. It just won't happen because Pio is going to assume everyone else is also playing pretty close to optimally. And then in that case, you're, you're like kind of having your edges, but in live poker, it's just not the same. And like in live poker, you definitely have to pay more attention to the people at your table and generalize their tendencies pretty quickly and be able to make that make kind of a reaction in the middle of the hand to decide whether like what what the best course of action is since live poker is just a lot different than online you're usually a little deeper stacked especially in like the early to middle stages of a tournament like people that have done stuff that you probably haven't seen before because like they're just the way they play you have to learn how to generalize these people and kind of understand the best way to go against them you have to understand if people are calling flops too much you have to understand if people are folding flops too much you have to understand if people are raising flops too much like you have to also see like what people are doing pre-flop post-flop all that stuff live poker is just different it's a lot more exploit based than live poker i could tell someone what the correct like baseline thing to do and like you can play off the baseline and still be successful but you're missing a lot of things that might take you from like a smallish winning reg to like a much bigger winning reg in live poker that's the difference because in live poker the stakes are much much higher usually you know like a small stakes tournament is 500 whereas an online 500 is high stakes and the quality of player is much different live in a 500 than it is online in a 500 so when you're playing live you have to kind of understand a lot of people are more so minefields and you have to understand how to kind of get through it and like win the tournament or like accumulate your chips the most with like the least variance if that makes sense the path of least resistance is generally the one you want to take when you work with your students is there any memorable low-hanging fruit where you were able to kind of just give them a pearl of wisdom that they were able to execute quickly or something that often happens in that respect where you give general advice and it's immediately very useful I think that happens a lot. Like a a lot of the time, I think people, one thing, especially in live poker is everyone's really concerned about being balanced and that's just stupid because you don't need to be against a lot of players. Like, again, if you're playing a 25 K high roller, yeah, you want to be balanced. But if you're playing like a thousand dollar live poker tournament, people aren't going to see these hands and be like, Oh, well, he's probably unbalanced here. So blah, blah, blah. But like, you should be unbalanced in these spots because you can just play tendencies off people. And I I think the concept that balance doesn't need to happen in like small stakes live tournaments is something that gets picked up a lot. And when people kind of start to realize this and trend more to what they should be doing, like in general, people should be trending more towards having it a lot more when the pots get big. So like when, when you start understanding that like people that aren't folding top pair, even though they probably should to like a very aggressive bluff line, and like you're, you're constantly trying to bluff them off top pair and they keep calling you with top pair because they're just not going full top pair. Like those are the type of people that like you need to trend to just having it more often and playing lower variance against them. Whereas like even though Pio says like they should fold top pair by the river, they're not going to. It doesn't matter. And stuff like that, like a lot of the time I get argument is like, well, balance. And it's just like, nah, don't do it. Stuff like that is where I think my students kind of learn and like see things a little bit more clearly to have success so where they're not just going off in these hands like kind of torching half their stacks and spots that like maybe should be profitable but really aren't on paper 
It's interesting that you say that because I feel like there's also the stereotype that live players don't bluff enough, right? So you're saying that a lot of your students actually over bluff in spots because their their opponents are just calling them down. Well, GTO is going to have you bluffing some percentage of the time, but I mean, in some spots, that percentage should trend towards zero. Even though, like in a perfectly balanced range, you might have thirty five percent bluffs here. In reality, you need to be have like zero just because of the way players are. And it, it's just not going to work out the way that it should. And that's why like, you can't take Pio to a live tournament because it's just not going to be optimal. It'll be winning, but it won't be optimal. What do you see people doing wrong when they try to study on their own? Because obviously there are just so many different options for people to try and get better at poker from the mini training sites to solvers. Is there something that you've noticed people are overdoing or underdoing? It, it's hard to say. Uh, because I don't really know exactly how people study or what they do, but like they're studying things that they probably feel they're weakest in and they should get better at it. And that's good for them. But it's just a matter of kind of, if you have this general assumption that everyone's doing this and you're supposed to be doing this because of that, like it's just going to be wrong because when you go to live poker, almost nobody's doing what Pio thinks they're doing. And that's why you need to kind of be able to generalize you, you can play a hand differently against a good reg that you then you do against someone who's a little more unknown who's shown tendencies one way or another so chance cornis founded this site um how would you say you and he differ the most in terms of your like um approach to live poker because some of the things you said do sound a lot like him as well <laughs> yeah it's funny because chances um chances is trying to win 75 percent of the pots and I'm, I'm trying to win like 15 that's that's our biggest difference but we both kind of understand how to play. And like one thing we both completely understand is that we have an image that we portray to people and we need to learn how to play off of it. And what's the image that you portray to other people? It's weird because like I'm known just because of a tournament I won and that sometimes people will want to bluff me more because they want to have a story, which goes back to like the egotistical stuff we talked about earlier and all this stuff. And they will like happily torch equity in order to do it. And if I can figure out that they're doing it, then I can, I I can kind of see through that and, you know, catch the punt. But other times, like people think I'm solid, I'm aggressive, you know, it's a mixed bag. But in general, I'm a reasonably tighter player. And like I said, when pots get bigger, I tend to have it, especially in live poker, because it's hard to be bluffing when people aren't folding. No, you said 75% chance of trying to win the pot. And did you say 50 for you or 15? 15. That's what I thought. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to win a normal amount of pots. Chance is trying to win five times as many. Amazing. The best part about poker is I could tell someone that I played tight this entire day. I haven't done anything out of line. I've played very solid. I've shown down nothing but good hands. I'll get in the hand with them and I will continue to play solid and continue to just have good hands against them and they still won't believe you. So there's always that human doubt in someone's mind. Like they might, you might be trying to pull a fast one on them or something. And it's, it's like funny. I could tell everybody, everyone that's listening to this is going to think like, oh, Joe, Joe always has it. And then we're going to get on a table and they're not going to care. They're going to think, oh, Joe, Joe knows that I know he always has it. So he's going to not do it. And it's just like, no, it's, it's great about poker. You can tell everybody exactly what you do and they still won't believe you. No, because it's not just about knowledge. It's about like the emotional fortitude to do what's right. And also, you know, the, the ability to integrate these ideas into your thinking. So you, you also obviously play lots of online poker. We focused on your life career, but you live in PA or New Jersey now. I live in Pennsylvania. I've really didn't play any online poker up until this quarantine. And the online poker in Pennsylvania isn't the highest quality. My game's definitely gotten worse because I've adjusted to that player field. 
I'm on Poker Stars PA as well. I play like the Super Tuesday and then I play like the Major on Sunday and then I play like the High Roller. So I guess I play two, three tournaments a week generally. And what have you noticed? People are just much different. <laughs> it's it's a lot easier to read people and kind of understand their mistakes or what they're doing or like I've bluff caught just way too many times on that site with success. Like whereas like Pi would yell at me for calling 70, 75% of the hands I call with, but I'm winning the pot. So that's what I noticed too. Yeah. I just I wanted you to say it first, but I was like, <laughs> Yeah, because um I felt like the opposite in New Jersey. I felt like there are like people uh Every time I, I call the bluff, I would just be like, wow, they always have it. And then PA, it was like the total opposite. So it was very confusing because, you know, they're right next to each other. Jersey is connected with Vegas and Vegas tends to have the best poker players in general. It's probably the toughest place to play poker as a professional and just in general because there's a lot of professionals there and they're all decent. So like you play like a $500 tournament in Vegas, it might be a bit tougher than a 500 tournament in Atlantic City. Like WSOP is a completely different animal. I'm also... Every time I'm bluff catching too, I'm trending towards losing. I'm I'm definitely a much less successful on Jersey in this like week and a half of World Series than I have been on Pennsylvania. I miss Pennsylvania, man. I go, I show up, I register three tournaments a week, I win one of them, I take money out of the economy, I put it on Jersey, I give it back. And Philly is a great place to be, right? Yeah, it, it, it's fun. There's nothing wrong. I'm in Conshohocken, which is right outside of Philly. What would people be most surprised about your hobbies or interests outside of poker? I don't know. There isn't that much. When we used to got to be social, we, you know, we were going out a good amount on weekends, even just to like a friend's house. I'm more like, instead of going out to a bar and getting drunk, we're more like, let's stay in and like buy a bottle of wine and drink at home, kind of in the comfort. Because I, I don't like being in places with lots of people. And I think a lot of other people don't either. Our group is cool that way. Is this poker players that are mostly in your friend group or? Um... No, no. Girlfriend, her friend group, you know, became my friends. Kind of more like that. How long have you been with it with your girlfriend? Three and a half years. You're still getting along after these like four months of, you know, quarantine. Then it might be, it might be time to take the next step because a lot of people are going in the opposite direction. I'll tell you that. Oh yeah. She's been home pretty much the whole time. She has to work from home now and it's like, great you know we get to take care of each other all that stuff we have very different hours of awakening though because like she's still working normal nine to five and i'm waking up at like four but in a way maybe that's good because it gives you guys a little bit of space right oh yeah we see each other for five six hours and she goes to sleep then i'm on my own then you know she wakes up works kind of on her own then wakes me up if i'm not up yet and we hang for time rinse and repeat it's not a bad thing yeah that sounds great sounds yeah we're, we're we're definitely used to each other well, like I said, if, you know, you're getting along during these times when, you know, obviously, you know, divorce and breakups are kind of like, I think, I think on the rise. Yeah, they definitely are. It makes sense. And, you know, for some final words of advice do you have for people about poker, especially if they like can't afford maybe a private coach, like what should they do to try to improve their game? That's a good question. It generally, like the best way to learn is to gain experience and pay attention and stuff. Some people's brains can like do that and that'll help them a bit more. I think that's like the way my brain works. The more I played, the better I got. Like I could kind of tell who was good. When they did something I wasn't sure about and like it was working, I kind of thought about it and was like, I see why this works. Maybe I should start doing it too and so on and so forth. But I mean, there's, there's also stuff you can just study, but like you still have to play. If you can't, if you know all the stuff, but you can't apply it in game, you're kind of wasting your time. So you still have to play and kind of understand what you're doing and take leaps and bounds to do that. The more you play, it, it, the more like better you're going to get, the more things you're going to experience, the more like general population tells you might get and be able to like have a better baseline about what you should do. Stuff like that. You just got to play a lot. It, it probably costs money to get good and it doesn't have to be because you're sinking it into a training site. 
You're going to have to play some tournaments. You're going to have to take some hits. You're going to have to learn. Whether it's like chess or poker, the whole point is that I think as adults, we want to like not think hard because that's tiring, especially if you have to do it for nine or 10 hours during a live event. That's how tournaments are. You play long days, then you go to sleep, and then you wake up and maybe play again. Yeah, well, in your case, for that World Series of Poker win, um, you, you got all the way to the end. Do you have that... Uh, any paraphernalia of you winning in your home, like a picture of it, like the bracelet displayed in a nice case? My, my parents got a lot of the winner's pictures framed and sent them to people. Uh, the bracelets, no one can like take the bracelet from me. It, it's in a place where it's not going to be seen. It's not going to be heard from. Those pictures float around. My parents, you know, like to show it off and whatnot. Well, you know, it's every poker player's dream. How often do you think about the fact that you won the Royal Series of Poker Main event, like how often does either a hand or a memory from that event kind of like cross your mind? Not often. We're five years past, so it, it's definitely in like a somewhat more significant part of the past for me. I'm trying to move forward to make make the money now. I, I don't want to look back and be like, oh, I made so much money then, I don't need to make money now. That's not really how it works. You got to keep making money if I want to survive and advance and build my life and all that stuff. I want to be successful in the future too. So, you know, like, World Series is going on right now. That's my focus. I don't care that I won a tournament a couple of years ago. I got to try to win the one today. Why do you have to win a lot of money? You don't like to go out, you know, go to crazy expensive restaurants and buy crazy expensive things. Well, why not? The more money you have, the better, right? With more money, I can do more things with it. At some point, I'm going to probably want to buy a house. I'm probably going to, you know, I have a lot of money in investments. Most of my money is in investments. So it's kind of just quote unquote gone basically until I need it. When I'm older, I want to be able to not have to worry about working. But I'm I'm happy with where I'm at now. We're kind of just chilling. You know, right now the world kind of slowed down our development. So we're we're kind of waiting for that to pass. Yeah. But that's really good that you're already thinking ahead to retirement and stuff because yeah, poker, you know, doesn't last forever for everyone. So it's a really smart way to think about it. I'm really grateful that you offered to be on the grid to talk about Queen 10 offsuit because it was really such an epic hand and it was one that, you know, you you brought to the grid. Now, we've had a lot of really good players bring in hands that they lost, so that's not that unusual. But usually they feel a little bit more of emotion towards it. But, you know, in your case, you're just so straightforward about it. It sounds like you would have played it very similarly today with the wreath that you had. So I really love your perspective on it. I also won the hand, so that that helped. I, I I didn't like make a big mistake to lose. I still made if if you even want to consider it a mistake, like maybe he made a mistake to like make me win less, but I still won the hand and like put myself in a position. So it's easier emotionally to see you winning something than it is to see you losing something. Yeah, I agree with that. That's why I think a lot of the weaknesses of most poker players is not getting enough value in certain hands, you know, and the reason they might not fix that leak as quickly as other leaks is if they still won the hand, they already feel good. Yeah, that, that's definitely a leak, not getting value when you can get value. You're just missing opportunities to chip up. It's hard to get chips, man. It's hard to make hands. So like when you get one, you want to get the most you can out of it. Especially if you do bet. Like I get if you like check back and then you later realize it was a clear value bet. Somebody might feel bad about that. But if somebody like bets, but maybe they could have bet more, they should have bet more in that spot. A, a lot of times they might not just even notice. It just kind of passes and they won the hand and they feel happy and that's it. Yeah, I completely agree. But I had the nuts. So it was going to be hard for me to not try to put more money in, <laughs> in this hand. 
I don't know if he had a sixth sense or if he just like really did not want to get it in with uh, anything but the nuts in that scenario, right? Yeah, if I made a mistake, it, I could have made like a small raise to like always get called by these hands, but it seemed a little clowny at the time. Like in retrospect, if I made a small raise and left him with some chips, maybe he'd call. But like he, he folded three kings, which I, again, I don't expect people to fold three kings. I don't expect people to fold ace king. So I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna try to get all the chips I can. I'm gonna go for max value there. Well, thank you so much, Joe McKeon, for talking about Queen 10 offsuited with us. He is uh, Dude404 on Twitter, and you can also find him on Chip Leader Coaching. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.